0: The New
1: Statesman.
0: Hello, you're listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast from the New Statesman Spotlight team. We cover policy for those who shape it and the businesses it affects. I'm Becky Slack. In this episode, we're discussing a vital issue that's really affecting the UK economy, the exodus of older workers from the workforce. Since the start of the pandemic in 2020, almost a million people aged 50 to 64 have left employment. We currently have around half a million fewer people in the workforce, aged 50 plus, than we would have had if pre-pandemic trends had continued. Other major economies have seen their employment rates bounce back after the pandemic, and the Financial Times has reported that the UK is the only developed economy where inactivity kept rising after the initial pandemic shock. The impact of this? Companies are suffering staff shortages and a chronic lack of skills and labour across the workforce are leading to poor efficiency, postponed investment and an economy operating below capacity. I'm going to explore the reasons behind this sticky, tricky post-pandemic phenomenon and what can be done about it with a panel of esteemed expert guests. This episode is sponsored by Phoenix Group, the UK's largest long-term savings and retirement business. And joining me from Phoenix Group is Claire Hawkins, the group's Director of Corporate Affairs and Investor Relations. Also on the panel, we have Alison McGovern, the MP for Wirral South and Shadow Minister for Employment. And I'm delighted to welcome a senior representative of the UK's business community, Neil Carberry, the Chief Executive of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. Welcome to you all. Let's start with you, Alison. So where do you think the origins of this so-called great retirement lie? And what is the Labour Party's perspective on it, please? Well, I think some of it is to do with the pandemic and what we went through
2: and the health of the nation. And I think some of the evidence of it was there before the pandemic. And if you think about the kind of pressures that people are facing at the moment, as I say, some of it, you know, we, we know that the, the country is less well than it was um, pre-pandemic. We've got waiting lists that are much longer than they ought to be. But actually, a lot of people getting caught between needing to help family take care of little children and having parents and older relatives in their 80s and 90s who also need a, look, a lot of looking after. That number has, of people has been steadily growing. And I think... We've kind of got a bit of a perfect storm, when it, particularly when it comes to people in their 50s and 60s, many of whom might have thought in early days, actually, I would like to keep working. You know, I, I would maybe like to go down in terms of part-time hours, or I might want to you know, take a bit less responsibility, but still offer my experience to a business or a workplace. But these days, we've got this massive crunch between people's caring responsibilities, their own health and the stress of work at the moment. So I think that's the kind of root cause. And obviously, um, we've been doing a lot of thinking about how can we act on all of those different elements of the crunch? How can we try and make life easier in different ways, which will not only give people a better quality of life, more money in their pocket, but also ease the tight labor market for business too.
0: And can you expand on that a little bit, please? What, what kind of policy um, suggestions are you going to be making? Well, so the first thing that I think is really crucial
2: is particularly relates to women, is caring responsibilities. And I think a lot of people will know now that if you've got a relative who is needing um, 24-hour care or you know they need care in their own home or they're looking for um, somewhere to be in a, in a nursing home or a care home, I think a lot of people will understand the stress of that. you know not being able to get proper night's sleep, um, not because you've got a little baby, but because you've got an older loved one who's falling out of bed the whole time. Um, that is a big stress. So the first fair pay agreement that we want to bring forward, if Labour were in government tomorrow, we would obviously want our new deal for working people. And under that, we'd have um, an approach where we would try to get a better deal for um, workers. And the first approach that we would take would be to look at the care sector um, and to say, can we get better standards, terms and conditions, and so on, to try to encourage more people into that area to deal with the labor shortages, to put on a proper footing how skilled um, and how important that role is. That will help both women who work in care and women who work in other jobs, but who are otherwise being pulled away from that work because they're looking after an older loved one. There are other things too in that new deal for working people, including, um, you know, proper flexibility. Yes, people need rights at work, but they also, you know, want the culture of work to change. I think the best businesses now are trying to offer people genuine flexibility. I speak to a lot of employers who know that if they can make sure that people's family lives are like respected and supported, they'll keep hold of those workers. You know, if you're in a business where, frankly, it's flexibility all on one side, I think that, um, unfortunately, people feel they've got no other choice but to leave. So we want to work with business and with trade unions um, and with kind of experts in the area to figure out how do you have genuinely inclusive workplaces? And so building up that positive flexibility on both sides. The UK is a leader in working from home, which is a great thing, but therefore we should be a leader on positive, flexible working on both sides so that people are not pulled away from work by caring responsibilities Um, They've got a good, flexible job that they enjoy. And then obviously, you know, we have got a big plan to reform our NHS so that if somebody does have a hip or a knee or shoulder pain, that that help and support is there, you know, in a matter um, of time that is appropriate rather than having to wait for many, 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 many weeks.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Neil, let's come to you. Um, You're in contact with all kinds of businesses every day of the week. Can you give us a bit of a sense of how the great retirement might be affecting them, please?
3: Yeah, so I think if you go back about uh, a decade, say, I think there are a couple of factors before the pandemic that kind of really exposed the decisions we've been talking about that people made around the pandemic uh, to being greater. One is uh, there are just a lot more people in the generations, 50 plus. That that baby boom that's moving towards uh, retirement is... It it, is chunky and the generations that follow are are smaller. So there's a lot of talent there that has been in the labor force for the last 20, 30 years. And companies are powerfully aware of that. They're actually starting to see it in their leadership development uh, programs because there are just fewer people coming through. The other thing that we did rightly a decade or so ago was abolish the default retirement age. And in abolishing default retirement age, we did have a lot of people uh, stick on and work a little longer. And before the pandemic, you saw active retirement ages rising and rising, and that was great. Um, and then I think there was a bit of a social moment uh, during the pandemic where a lot of people thought, yeah, that's it for me. I don't want the five days a week anymore. Exactly what Alison was saying. I could, probably could work, but you know, I've got caring responsibilities. Um, don't discount. We see a lot of grandparental care with the cost of childcare being so high. So often grand, uh, grandmas, and it's usually grandmas, uh, stepping down in work because they uh, take you a couple of days to look after the grandkids and save their kids some money is really important because they're struggling to, to, to meet costs. Um, a lot of what we see, Alison hinted at, which is companies are beginning to see that pay is one factor that keeps people, and obviously inflation's been rising, there's been pressure on pay. But we're definitely seeing companies come to an understanding that it's actually quite difficult to replicate a really good flexible working deal. so therefore, if someone you employ has a really good flexible working deal, they're very likely to stay. The thing that I think really cuts through and we've um, we've placed 1700 people out of long-term unemployment into work at the RAC this year through our partnership with some welfare to work providers, is that often the gateways to getting people into work are actually quite simple. I'll give you a really good example. Uh, we, our team here helped a single dad. And that single dad had two children, uh, one of whom had special needs. So the school for the child without special needs was on one end of the city. The school for the child with special needs was on the other end of the city. Completely ruined the commute and was really struggling to find an opportunity that to work in the slots where they could work. And it didn't take a lot of support to, um, to get, uh, get that guy into work. And we see the same with, for instance, older workers who maybe ha- had a health issue, and they can't go back five days a week, but they've got lots of skills to share. I at the time-wise uh, power list of flexible workers had a, a great example of someone in the construction industry who'd been writing bids for 30 years, could do a couple of days a week now and was coming in and just doing advice on writing bids for that construction firm. So if we think a bit flexibly, there's actually a lot we can do, but it starts with acknowledging that there's no one size fits all.
0: So, Claire, I know that um, Phoenix Group has done a lot of work in this area. Um, do you want to talk us through some of the findings and insights that, that you've seen and, and sort of share your reflections on what we've heard so far? Yeah, well, thanks
1: very much, Becky. And, and uh, I, I strongly agree with the messages that Alison and Neil have been given. They, they align really closely and to the research that we've been doing. But if I might just explain why this matters to Phoenix. So, as, as you said in your introduction, with the UK's largest long-term Saving and retirement business, which means our role in society is to help people save today for the retirement income they want in the future. Um, And we know two things impact your income in retirement. The first is how long you live. And on average, we're living longer lives now than we used to. And the second is how much you can save. And you can only save if you're working. So making sure that there is access. For people as they get older to good work is absolutely essential for us fulfilling our role and our our purpose as an organisation, and and that's why we chose to set up our own think tank called Phoenix Insight, which has done lots of research in this area and explored the reasons why the over fifties are finding it hard to stay in work. We generally find that that um, older workers don't feel that their work environments are very age inclusive. They tend to have low levels of job satisfaction. That's one of the key things that we saw as a driver for the increase in economic inactivity and people falling out of the workplace after the pandemic. And we know that one in three over 50 feel their age is a disadvantage when applying for jobs. So a big challenge there around really creating multi-generational work, uh, workplaces. And then the other challenge that I would... um call out, which I welcome people's thoughts on, is um, the fact that we're, we're really bad at facing into career advice and providing access, access to sort of lifelong skills and uh, training opportunities for people. We typically have a system which pushes all of that into the first 25 years of your life. And I've got kids in that age bracket, and, and that's brilliant for them, but it's it's rare we're going to have a career for life now. And so, you know, equipping people, enabling them to have access to Reskilling opportunity, lifelong uh, learning, stimulating the debate. You know, only fifteen percent of over fifties have had any career advice in the last three years. It's just not a conversation we're having at, at my age and older. So, I think that's another area which is
0: posing a real challenge
1: to keeping the over fifties in good work.
0: And you mentioned this phrase, age inclusive workforce. What what does that mean in in practice? Have you got any insights that you can share there, please? There is
1: three Rs essentially which help us make, um, uh, a workforce really age, inc- age inclusive. And that's all around recruitment, retaining those older workers, and also retraining those older workers. So from a recruitment perspective, that is about trying to strip that age bias out of your recruitment process. At Phoenix, we've actually done that by taking out some words, which research has indicated discouraged older workers from applying. So for example, the words energetic and enthusiastic now. As an over 50-year-old myself, I feel very enthusiastic and energetic about my work, but apparently that's a natural barrier. Older people are climbing because they assume the job is being targeted at people in their 20s and 30s. Retaining people is really key. And I think actually the conversation we've already started around flexibility, around supporting carers to stay in the workplace is really, really, really key to retaining people and investing in them for the future. And then that retraining point is about waking up people's appetite. To needing new skills and actually the work that's being done, piloted by, by the government, but also being taken forward by private sector, by companies like Phoenix around something called the midlife MOT. Sounds like something you should do to your car, but actually do it to yourself, where you have a look at yourself, where you are and what you need from a finance perspective, from a health perspective, from a wellbeing perspective. That those can, can really help retrain, encourage people to think about the retraining that they need. So recruit People in an age-inclusive way, retain them by supporting them with flexibility and retrain them for the skills that they need in the future.
0: Neil, just picking up on the point Claire made then about um, recruitment and you know, language in, in recruitment ads, et cetera. Um, have you got anything to add to that? Have you got sort of any experiences from some of the businesses that you've worked with?
3: This is incredibly important to think about processes. And this is where it's difficult for many businesses to kind of do the first thing, which is to look at yourself in the mirror because businesses, you know, they do what they do. They make widgets, they sell widgets, uh, they advise on widgets. The challenge for them is their recruitment process is a process and it was probably written down some time ago. And, you know, when I'm talking to audiences of REC members, clients, I'll say, well, one of the problems we have is you send us a job description and we look at it and it's probably been hired on five times since it was written sometime in 1984. And, and that piece around just starting with, "What message am I sending?" is really important. The REC, we're, we're, we're just launching this month a, a chunky new guide to inclusive recruitment. And what, what's really telling is when you look at inclusivity in your recruitment process, it benefits every candidate, and it specifically benefits candidates who traditionally have not been as included in your process. The best single example of this would be perhaps a candidates with a disability. And then of course, many disabilities are required. People get them as they get older. So 50 plus workers are proportionally, probably a bit more likely to have a, have a disability. Um, do you ask, do you have a disability? Or do you ask every candidate, are there some allowances or changes we'd like, you'd like us to make to the process to make it easier for you? Now that will help with people with a disability, but it'll also help people who are neurodiverse. And it will help every candidate, frankly, you know, um, gives you a a chance to be more generally inclusive while specifically helping uh, groups that traditionally have been uh, locked out. The other thing that I think is really important, and I think it's important for us as recruiters and recruitment businesses to bear this in mind, is often when people come to the labor market in their 50s and their 60s, they're coming out of a period where they've had a good job and they've had it for a long time. I, you know I've been working in recruitment on and off for 25 years now. The labor market I worked in as a consultant in the '90s now you find jobs in very different ways. You require advice. And one of the things that we've been trying to do thinking about recruitment is thinking about it as a profession, um, and that advice and the mix of advice that's on offer to people from recruiters in recruitment businesses from places like job centers, from careers advice and those things, getting that right so that people are not put off or daunted by the process. I mean, if you haven't applied for a job for 25 years, as many uh, workers coming out of a long uh, period with a single employer might be, the concept of going on to LinkedIn and finding work on LinkedIn the concept of interacting with the sort of apps that many firms use now to to manage applications those those are quite daunting things we need to think about how we support people to understand what a really good job search looks like in uh, the 2020s
0: um alison so at this point around kind of you know the world of work changing so dramatically particularly since some of all, some of our older workers might have you know entered the workforce um, and the point Claire made about um, retraining and, and upskilling. What, what's the Labour Party's sort of policy on this? Is there, have you got any sort of ideas for um, of supporting older people through new career paths, you know, apprenticeships for, for older people? Well, at the moment, job centres are
2: supposed to offer um, what Claire was talking about, midlife MOTs, and I think that's a good thing. Um, the problem is with job centres at the moment, no one really wants to go in them. They're mainly, I think Neil said it really well before, they've mainly become kind of places where you go and sort of they check that you've done all you needed to do with benefit. They're not really that sort of labour exchange that they were originally conceived to be. So we need to build on what they offer to um, people, particularly thinking about older workers. Um, We've got shortages left, right and centre in the British economy at the moment. And if you're a person who's already done 20 or 30 years in a working role of any kind and you've proved you're a reliable person who's got common sense and where you can, you know, where you approach other people in a good way. Those skills are widely relevant and I think unfortunately at the moment what happens in job centres is that people get pigeonholed or there's a certain type of job that's widely available and so people broadly get offered that and we shouldn't be having this kind of what I think of as the any job culture. We should have a best job possible, really ambitious for people. Um, we've got a tight labor market at the moment. There's lots of options out there. And we shouldn't be saying to people, look, just get the just get the first job you can. Um, there's a lot of other organizations that that outside of the Department of Work and Pensions that have reprovided employment support, whether it's a local council or Scope, actually, the the charity um, for disabled people um, has its own employment service that's much better and much more tailored towards supporting both employers and potential employees with disabilities. And I think that shows you that central failure that we've got. So I think we need to basically have a completely new culture and approach in job centres.
0: Um, and what about education and training? Because going back to university can be quite expensive. Um, what, what is the Labour Party doing to sort of encourage older workers to go back through education and training in, in some way?
2: Well, at Conference Care announced you know, we'll have the whole um, new way of looking at FE colleges um, creating technical excellence colleges um, because, you know, our plans to change our economy also involve a lot of new jobs. Um, so they, we need Towns and cities to be working hand in glove between job centres, colleges, as I said, new technical excellence colleges that are really looking to provide those skills for those really high quality jobs and with business um, where their investments, for example, the change to net zero or um, where I mentioned before, we've got more online work than ever before. That's going to need um, a lot of people with different technical skills. We really need local places to have a plan that both sees that investment happening in the right places and also have a people plan that's going to make sure that um, particularly in areas of high historic uh, unemployment or inactivity that people are getting into those really good quality jobs we know that there's a kind of circular benefit with people's health from that point of view. So if we're thinking about that older generation that is a, as a, a growing big part of our population, we've got a challenge to keep people well and to keep them in good jobs. But one will help the other.
0: Claire and Neil, um, you know, we're kind of, I'm asking questions to the, to the Labour Party about what they're going to do to support this. But actually, should some of the onus be on employers' themselves, you know, what what could they be doing to protect the health and to upskill and retrain um, their workers? Is is there some responsibility that should fall on on employers? It's not just the government that has to deal with this, right? I think it's actually about individuals
1: in- engaging in the opportunity. Uh, it's about government putting the framework in place, but then there's definitely a role for businesses for employers to play as as well. Um, we, we talked about the need for businesses to. Actively engage and want to commit to building age-friendly, um, age-inclusive, multi-generational workplaces. Mm-hmm. Recognising and celebrating those great talents and skills that Alison was just talking to—that people with many years of experience in the business can bring into play. So I think big responsibility with with employers to do that, and we would encourage them to, you know, employers to join and support the age-friendly employer pledge that's been developed by the Centre for Ageing Better in that regard, which which we have done as employer too.
3: I think that thing about it being team sport, Claire, I couldn't agree more with. And obviously the, the age friendly workplace pre- pledge is really important for people to, uh, to, to lean in on. I, I come back to almost prehistoric skills policy. So if we go back to Sandy Leach's report for the labor government back in 2006. What did he say about skills? He said, skills is a drive demand. It drives from the commercial decisions made by employers. So actually to encourage employers to lead in more on this. Obviously there are lots of enlightened firms out there that are doing the right thing. It is about that alignment with sustainability of your workplace, of your workforce. There are a few things that government can do to help us win at this team sport. I think for the last few years, a lot of this debate has been about what government does. What regulation does government pass? What, uh, what, what funding for skills does government deliver? If you look at the skills system, actually, the secret is how do we use public fund to crowd in private funding? So some of the stuff, for instance, that Andy Burnham has been doing in Manchester around skills, where we're building a local economy that has a clear fo- set of focus sectors that they want to grow in and that the local skills provision gets behind. And then you make sure you open up that local skills provision to people of all backgrounds and people of all ages that starts to really open up some of the paths so that when someone goes into the job centre, they're not getting referred to a senior writing service, they're getting referred to this college or that provider to talk about what the pathway is to get into um, one of these growth sectors.
0: Thank you. Um, Alison, I think we've got time for just one more question. I just wondered if you would got any sort of reflections on um, what Neil and Claire um, have been talking about and What we might have to look forward to coming up from from the Labour Party, in particular, I was interested in what Neil was saying about um, the local economy and um, sort of skills providers and educators and and sort of the local local councils and everybody all working together um, to create the right environment for everybody to thrive. Um, And he referred to Andy Burnham in Manchester. Are we likely to see more of that type of activity? Definitely, yes.
2: There's a number of our big structural flaws in our economy that need to be tackled together. And one of them is the unbalanced way in which our growth and our economic activity happens, very concentrated in the southeast of the country. And whilst um, some of our fastest growing cities are actually in the north of England, they're still making up a gap. And so we want to see them grow fast and have good productivity growth, which means people using their time in a way that generates more income. Um, and that is more successful at spreading um, economic well-being. So um, that journey that Greater Manchester has been on, I think, needs to be learned from. And whilst every city is different, actually there are some key features of it that I think are really important, not least the one that Neil mentioned. We want to see colleges, as I was talking about before, rejuvenated and working very closely together with um, job centres and the health service and other parts of government, including local authorities, to have a shared plan for economic well-being for their towns, and towns and cities. Um, what does that mean in practice? I think that does mean you know identifying where you've got really strong growth shortages and where if you could get people on the right path, that would be a good career for them for years to come.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, I'm sure we could have spoken for much longer on this, but unfortunately we. We're out of time. Um, Thank you, Claire, Alison and Neil for joining me today. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more of Spotlight's policy reporting in our standalone Spotlight podcast feed or the New Statesman Spotlight website. The links are in the show notes. I'm Becky Slack and our producer has been Grace Braddock. Thanks for listening.